Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. A deadly train crash in India. Over 100 people are killed and hundreds more injured. It's one of the country's worst rail accidents in years. A default now avoided. President Biden set to sign into law the debt ceiling bill now that it's passed Congress. How the deal will impact U.S. government spending. Former Vice President Mike Pence can breathe a sigh of relief. The DOJ is ending its investigation into his classified documents just in time for his big announcement next week. New January 6 footage shows Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi's daughter filming the evacuation. Some are now pointing to the fact that she's a professional filmmaker. And the Air Force is denying a colonel's claim that an AI-powered drone killed the operator in a simulation. Find out why the colonel says that doesn't dull his warning. Breaking news from India. 120 people are dead and hundreds more injured after three trains collided just hours ago. Two passenger trains and a goods train collided in an accident in the city of Balasore in Odisha state. That's according to a video statement by a local official. Over 120 bodies have been recovered so far, according to the state's fire department head. The death count is expected to go up as rescue efforts continue. Authorities say rescue teams have been dispatched to the site of the crash, including more than 115 ambulances and several fire service units. Some 850 people have been taken to local hospitals with injuries. The cause of the crash is still unknown. And in the U.S., the Justice Department and its now-closed investigation into former Vice President Mike Pence. The agency will not bring charges for possible mishandling of classified documents found at his home. This comes as Pence is set to announce his presidential run next week. NTD's Arlene Richards has more. The DOJ has informed former Vice President Mike Pence's attorney that the formal investigation into classified documents found at his Indiana home will not lead to any criminal charges. After a months-long probe, the Justice Department has officially closed the investigation. In January, Pence's attorney notified the National Archives after finding about a dozen classified documents in boxes maintained at Pence's home. Pence had asked his attorneys to conduct the search shortly after news broke that President Biden's attorneys discovered classified documents in a private office at the Penn-Biden Center and in his Wilmington home. Pence maintained that he was unaware the documents were in his home, but said he took responsibility for it. His advisor has said that the former vice president and his attorneys fully cooperated with the appropriate authorities. The Justice Department did not appoint a special counsel for the Pence probe, but the investigation into classified documents found at former President Trump's Florida home is still ongoing. Many have said the circumstances of that investigation are in stark contrast to Pence's situation. They've come after me. They've come after me on many things. The Trump investigation is being conducted by special counsel Jack Smith, who is expected to announce soon whether or not charges will be filed. Meanwhile, a separate special counsel was appointed to conduct an investigation into Biden's classified documents. I think you're going to find there's nothing there. I have no regrets. The Pence probe closed just as he gears up to announce his presidential run on June 7th in Iowa. Arlene Richards, NTD News. And a looming default has now been averted. President Biden is touting the debt ceiling agreement after the bill got the green light from Congress. 
NTD's Iris Tao has more from the White House. And President Biden is hoping to sign the bill to raise the nation's debt ceiling as soon as this Saturday. That's according to the White House, which on Friday touted the bill as a major win. Watch. The bipartisan budget agreement protects our historic and hard-earned economic recovery. It is a testament to the president's strength that more Democrats than Republicans in both House of Congress voted for this bill. In a Friday statement, President Biden also says that he looks forward to signing the bill while adding that this bill protects the major accomplishments under his administration. And the victory lap here comes after the Senate on Thursday night passed a bill with more Democrats supporting it than Republicans, as was the case in the House. About two-thirds of Republican senators voted against it, with some of them complaining that this bill does not go as far as they wanted to cut spending. The plan has no limits. They borrow as much money as they can possibly borrow until January of 2025. This bill will raise the nation's debt ceiling through the next two years while capping non-defense spending. But it does not make real cuts to some of President Biden's major programs like the Student Loan Cancellation Plan or the Inflation Reduction Act. We got more votes because the bill beat back the worst of the Republican agenda. But the Republican lawmakers who support this bill say that it's a major win for the GOP because they did get Biden to concede on making some spending cuts. So the messaging work here from both sides is expected to go on even after this bill becomes law. Meanwhile, the White House on Friday gave this update about President Biden's major fall on Thursday. There was no need uh, for the doctor to see him uh, as it was related to the fall, and he's doing fine. The White House adds that President Biden was tripped by a sandbag on the stage but quickly got back up. Reporting from the White House, Iris Tao, NTD News. President Biden is scheduled to address the nation at 7 p.m. Eastern Time tonight regarding the passage of the debt ceiling bill. It will be his first address from the Oval Office as president. Next, new January 6 footage is out. House Republicans made videotapes available to three media outlets. NTD's Arian Pazdar takes a look. The new video shows Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi's daughter walking in front of security and filming the Congresswoman. That's as they evacuated the Capitol building to seek shelter. Some are now saying Pelosi used January 6 to make money off the footage. Just the News is one of three media outlets receiving this footage from Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Nancy Pelosi's daughter can be seen walking in front of her to get shots for a documentary. That's as the congresswoman was trying to evacuate the Capitol. Nancy Pelosi's daughter, Alexandra Pelosi, works as a filmmaker. She made an HBO documentary about the congresswoman called Pelosi in the House. A year after January 6, Pelosi spoke to the Associated Press, recalling the events. What I remember the most and will never forget is the trauma that I saw in the eyes of the young people who were present for that violence. After releasing the new footage this week, Congresswoman Green told the outlet that the Pelosi's ignored various safety precautions. They used it. They used that situation to film it so that their family could make millions of dollars later by selling the video footage in a documentary. However, Alexandra previously responded to similar allegations. She told Salon.com earlier this year, I was never making a movie about Nancy Pelosi. There's never a microphone. A lot of it was filmed without her consent. She never gave me permission to film her. We did not sit down on a couch and hug it out and decide that we are going to make a propaganda film about Nancy Pelosi. 
Now, Congresswoman Green says they're planning to make public even more January 6 footage. However, she says this comes with a lot of security risks, as the footage could expose safety measures inside the Capitol. She also says the footage could lead to the arrest of innocent protesters who can be identified in the footage. Arian Pastar, NTD News. The Biden administration has ordered a 20-year ban on new drilling and mining around an indigenous cultural site in New Mexico. Interior Secretary Deb Holland made the announcement today. It bans all new drilling on public lands within a 10-mile radius of Chaco Cultural National Historical Park in New Mexico. It will not affect existing federal leases or drilling on private property. New Mexico was the nation's number two oil-producing state in 2022, but there's division on the leasing ban among some Native American tribes. Pueblo tribes have led the push for the land protection. Meanwhile, the Navajo Nation opposes the ban. Its tribal members have financial interests in drilling in the area. The park was listed as a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 1987 and contains structures dating back thousands of years. Next, the U.S. military today renamed North Carolina's Fort Bragg to Fort Liberty. It's one of the largest military installations in the world, but it was named for Confederate General Braxton Bragg. The rename is part of a push to rename bases that bear the name of Confederate leaders. It costs around $6 million. The fort is one of nine bases that a congressional commission proposed renaming. The others have been or are expected to be named after notable people, but Fort Liberty is the only one named after a value. Coming up, a new jobs report is out. The U.S. added nearly 340,000 jobs in April, beating expectations for the 14th straight month. And rising crime in numerous cities across the nation. We examine the trend and the pushback from residents demanding change in Oakland, California. After the break. Welcome back. The number of jobs added in the U.S. economy beat expectations again, according to new Labor Department data. This is the 14th month in a row that it has overperformed. Here's more. The number of jobs added in the U.S. beat expectations again in May. A total of 339,000 were added last month, according to new data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. But despite strong hiring, the unemployment rate rose last month. It ticked up three-tenths of one percent, now sitting at 3.7 percent. Here's ZipRecruiter's chief economist, Julia Pollack. The increase in the unemployment rate is almost sort of uh, unprecedented. It's, it's very unusual to have a 0.3 percentage point increase in the unemployment rate. Um, so that is very much uh, a sign that perhaps there's more slackness in the labor market than the rosy top line figures suggest. The Labor Department jobs report combines two surveys. One is the household survey, which asks individuals about their job status. And the other is the establishment survey, which collects data from businesses. The two surveys from the report today are sending conflicting messages. 
this jobs report, it sent very mixed signals. On the one hand, you have a total blockbuster of an establishment survey with over 300,000 jobs added. Then in the household survey, though, uh, the change in employment was about as large and in the opposite direction. Uh, the household survey showed a 440,000 increase in the number of unemployed Americans. The household survey tends to be more sensitive. It picks up weaknesses in the labor market before the establishment survey does. Some other signs of weakness in this report are decline in the work week and working hours and the decline of manufacturing jobs. I think there is reason to be concerned because interest rates have risen so much in recent months and we know that they usually have a drag on the labor market. There are signs also in the GDP report that uh, investment has been cooling in response to these high interest rates and when investment falls we know that employment tends to fall later. But despite signs of weakness, the labor market has been resilient. The continued recovery in sectors like restaurants, air travel, arts and entertainment have been holding it up. And the student loan payment pause is coming to a halt on a specific date soon. As part of the debt ceiling bill, borrowers must resume interest payments 60 days after June 30th. NTD's Fake Order has tips on what to do. The big student loan payment pause will end on a finalized date. Republicans managed to negotiate this into the debt ceiling deal. So now, borrowers must resume interest payments 60 days from June the 30th. That would be near the end of August. President Trump started the student loan payment pause because of the COVID pandemic. And it's been extended eight times since then. Biden wanted to extend it until late August, or 60 days after the Supreme Court made a decision on his student loan relief plan, whichever happened first. Now that this debt ceiling deal is over, what it does is it puts kind of an official end on the forbearance piece. Nick McLaverty is the CEO of Highway Benefits. His firm works with employers to offer student loan repayments to their employees as tax-free benefits. He says this deadline gives borrowers time to prepare. Here are some tips on paying back student loans. First step would probably be kind of evaluate your financial position, you know, see if you're able to look at refinancing options for a different rate. Um, if you can get lower than kind of the federal rate, then that would be a good first step, at least seeing your options. Um, additionally, if, if, you can, if you can afford to, maybe start paying off some of your loans now. This will help chip away at the principal. McLaverty says the deal seems like a compromise between Republicans and Democrats. It doesn't address the issue of student loan forgiveness. Faye Quarter, NTD News. A Northern California County judge was recently robbed at gunpoint. This comes after hundreds of locals voiced their anger over the increase in violent crime sprees in his city. On Thursday morning, an Alameda County judge was robbed at gunpoint of his Rolex, wallet, and other personal items at a parking garage in Oakland. According to the Alameda County Sheriff's Office, he was not injured. The suspects are described as three unknown males wearing masks. The Sheriff's Office and Oakland Police Department are investigating the case. Just days before on Tuesday, during a town hall meeting, hundreds of angry residents demanded answers and action from city leaders to address the recent series of violent crimes. I just want to turn to the audience and ask them, who here has been assaulted, held up, or beat up? Just right here. Wow. Oakland is out of control with the crime. I'm fed up. I'm absolutely fed up. 
like if they're doing hundreds of gunpoint robberies, mostly to women, to people of all races, where I have lived in poverty my whole life, it makes it hard for us to keep jobs, to find jobs, to live life, to fight through mental health issues. In response to some of the complaints, Oakland Council Member Dan Kalb said budgeting is an issue. The acting police chief and the command staff, they do regularly look at what other cities are doing, but as well as the city administration, I assume the new mayor as well, look at other cities as what they're doing to see if we can learn from them and to be more effective in using the dollars we have. That does happen and it needs to happen, certainly right now, no question about it. But the public says they need help immediately. Now, I'm asking you to let the cops start off giving tickets to low-level offenses. According to the Oakland Police Department, between May 22nd to 28th, there were four deaths due to violence, 48 instances of gunfire, 57 robberies, and nine carjackings. They have also investigated 41 homicides so far this year. And earlier today, I spoke with journalist and documentary filmmaker Leighton Woodhouse, who has been following this story and whose footage we just saw. Let's see that discussion now. Leighton, thanks for joining us. You've been following the rise in crime in California, specifically Oakland, including a pattern of attacks against women in some areas. What have you found? Well, I live in Oakland um, and not the good part of Oakland. Um, there's lots of crime around me and I also report on crime. Um, and, uh, you know, the crime rate has been going up in big cities around the country um, for several years now, but Oakland is especially bad um, and uh, for several reasons, one of which is that there's a new DA who is to the left, if anything, of Chesa Boudin, the famously uh, lenient um, former DA of San Francisco. Um, and so there's effectively no punishment for people for doing for, for doing serious crimes. For example, there is a band of um, of 12 to 17 year old kids who were who for the last several weeks or maybe a couple of months have been running around doing robberies in Oakland, um, responsible for 35 at least 35 um, violent robberies. Um, the Oakland Police Department uh, busted them and they were released um, two days later with no charge. Um, so that's sort of the state of the criminal justice system in Oakland. And Oakland also is so severely understaffed for police um, that the police are now on no report status, which means that they will only respond to a 911 call if it is a violent crime in progress. Otherwise, they won't even send a patrol car. So that's what it looks like in Oakland right now. Wow, really concerning. Now, I know that residents have been speaking out against this rising crime, including at an Oakland meeting earlier this week where things got quite heated. You were at that meeting, and in a Twitter post, you said that this was perhaps the most left-leaning, left-wing city in the country. So it seems like people across the political spectrum are acknowledging that this is a real problem, not just conservatives. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so this was a District 1 meeting. District 1 is sort of the more the most affluent part of town. Um, Montclair, Rockridge, that area, for those who, who know Oakland, Temescal. Um, and so the, and it tends to be probably the most uh, liberal voting part of town as well. Um, I mean, these are good liberal people who have, you know, in this house we believe type lawn signs on their lawns, et cetera. Um, and, uh, and they were livid. It was a couple of hours of just people just screaming at the council mem member for, um, you know, 
at one point, this woman asked how many people have been um, assaulted, held up, or robbed, and some, it must have been a third of the hands went up in the room. People, story after story of people telling, um, talking about themselves being beat up on their doorstep, being robbed at gunpoint on their doorsteps. And again, this is the affluent part of town um, where this, these kinds of crimes are happening. So you can only imagine what it looks like in the poorer, um, more traditionally high crime parts of town. Now, soaring crime rates have been turned around before, such as with New York's broken windows policing. What do you think is in the way of that approach today, and what's the way forward, do you think? I mean, they need more cops. That's clear. Um, you should be able to get a 911 call if your house is robbed, if your car is ripped off, if you're um, robbed at gunpoint. Um, and, uh, and that's going to be an uphill battle because... Uh, the reason why cops are leaving the Oakland Police Department, just like a lot of other police departments, are for a couple of reasons. First of all, because the, the the political climate that has ensued since the summer of 2020, and also because laws have been changed that make it much more likely for a cop who um, accidentally, this happens sometimes tragically, shoots somebody and kills somebody under questionable circumstances, they are much more likely to go to prison. Now, some might say that that's justice for a, for a cop who uh, who makes a mistake that, that grievous. But if you're a cop and you know that these things do happen, you're going to transfer to another department where the crime is low. And that's what's been happening all over the country and in Oakland as well, has been that cops have been transferring out of high crime cities and going to nice leafy suburbs that don't that don't need them and creating mass inequality in terms of public safety where poor low-income areas are getting service less and less longer and longer response time to 911 calls and rich low uh, crime neighborhoods are getting the cream of the crop of experienced veteran police officers an important issue here that needs looking at further thank you so much Leighton Woodhouse for your time you're welcome thank you coming up Many are wondering, if Russia loses the war in Ukraine, will Putin resort to using nuclear weapons? National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan lays out America's plan to prevent a nuclear war. And in Finland, U.S. State Secretary Antony Blinken said that no ceasefire will be on the table until Ukraine holds the upper hand in its war with Russia. That and more after the break. Welcome back. Many have been wondering whether Russia will resort to nuclear weapons if its invasion of Ukraine doesn't go as planned. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan explains how the U.S. plans to prevent a possible nuclear war. NTD's Jason Perry has that story. To address these growing dangers. Daryl Kimball of the Arms Control Association cited a recent YouTube poll in which people were asked what they thought might be the major causes of the potential end of life on Earth. Uh, what was the highest ranking uh, topic? Uh, it was uh, nuclear weapons and nuclear war. And in an effort to prevent a possible nuclear war, the United States and Russia in 2010 entered into the New START Treaty. It required a certain amount of transparency on nuclear data between the two countries and also allowed for inspections of their nuclear weapons. It also set limits on the number of nuclear weapons each country could have. But in February 2023, Russian President Vladimir Putin said Russia would no longer participate in that treaty. And soon after, Russia began the transfer of tactical nuclear weapons to Belarus. 
U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan explained the situation. And today we now stand at what our president would call an inflection point in our nuclear stability and security, a point that demands new strategies for achieving the same goal we've held since the Cold War, reduce the risk of nuclear conflict. And he said the U.S. doesn't need more nuclear arms to deter a nuclear war. We're investing in cutting-edge, non-nuclear capabilities that will help sustain our military advantage for decades to come. Capabilities like conventionally armed hypersonic missiles that can reach heavily defended high-value targets. And capabilities like new space and cyberspace tools that will help the United States retain its advantage across every domain. And Russia is not the only potential nuclear threat. The Pentagon says the Chinese regime is likely to more than triple its nuclear arsenal to 1,500 warheads by 2035. But neither Russia nor China have been willing to have discussions with the United States about nuclear weapons. We have stated our willingness to engage in bilateral arms control discussions with Russia and with China without preconditions. And before I jump into this, let me just step back and say that without preconditions does not mean without accountability. We'll still hold nuclear powers accountable for reckless behavior, and we'll still hold our adversaries and competitors responsible for upholding nuclear agreements. Sullivan also said they are working to modernize NATO's nuclear capabilities, such as certifying F-35 aircraft to be able to deliver modern nuclear gravity bombs. Jason Perry, NTD News. And next, no peace talks until Ukraine gains the upper hand. That's what U.S. State Secretary Antony Blinken said today. What's next on the agenda for Kyiv amid conflicts with Moscow? NTD's Sam Wong has the latest details. A just and lasting peace requires Ukraine's full participation and assent. Nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine. During a visit to Finland, Blinken predicted that some countries were likely to call for a ceasefire in the upcoming weeks, but he warned against any peace proposals that may consolidate Russia's seizure of Ukrainian territory. He went on saying that a ceasefire plan should address Kyiv's reconstruction and require Moscow to pay its fair share. Blinken called Putin's invasion a strategic failure, which diminished Russia's military, economic, and diplomatic power. The Kremlin often claimed it had the second strongest military in the world, and many believed it. Today, many see Russia's military as the second strongest in Ukraine. Since the beginning of the war, the United States has been Ukraine's top military and economic supporter, sending the country billions worth of weapon system to defend itself amid Russia's onslaught. Meanwhile, in Kyiv, Ukrainian air defenses intercepted more than 30 Russian cruise missiles and drones on Friday, and 15 cruise missiles and 21 attack drones were shot down overnight. According to the nation's presidential office, at least four civilians were killed and 14 wounded over the previous 24 hours. But Putin's invasion has cost its own nation greatly. As of this week, Russia has received several rounds of attacks within its border. And to keep up with this war in Ukraine, the nation is scrambling for manpower as its frontline forces reach to a near depletion. Sam Wong, NTD News. And the U.S. Air Force is speaking out after a colonel said an AI-powered drone killed the human operator in a simulation. The military is now denying the colonel's claim. The U.S. Air Force on Friday denied a claim that Colonel Tucker Cinco Hamilton made last week regarding the military's AI-powered drone. The colonel said at a summit in London that during a simulation, an AI-powered drone went rogue and killed its human operator. Hamilton said, quote, the operator would tell it not to kill that threat, 
but it got its points by killing that threat. So what did it do? It killed the operator. It killed the operator because that person was keeping it from accomplishing its objective. During the summit, the colonel cautioned against over-reliance on AI technologies. The Air Force responded in a statement to Fox News on Friday, saying, quote, The Department of the Air Force has not conducted any such AI drone simulations and remains committed to the ethical and responsible use of AI technology. It appears the colonel's comments were taken out of context and were meant to be anecdotal. Hamilton also told Fox News on Friday, quote, We've never run that experiment, nor would we need to in order to realize that this is a plausible outcome. Despite this being a hypothetical example, this illustrates the real-world challenges posed by AI-powered capability. This controversy over the colonel's claim comes as Congress steps up efforts to fund AI drone research. A bill currently moving through the House would provide about $1.6 billion to research how to incorporate AI into drone technology. And as the U.S. ramps up AI research, it's also considering how to prevent Chinese companies from stealing the know-how. New rules could curb the flow of investments and information into Chinese companies working on artificial intelligence, as well as advanced semiconductors and quantum computing. That's the word from the Treasury on Wednesday. To discuss this development, I spoke with Senior Fellow in Energy and Environment at the Centennial Institute, Kelly Sloan, earlier today. Thank you for joining us, Kelly. The U.S. is considering new rules to limit China and its military access to advanced semiconductors and artificial intelligence technologies. How significant is this move, and what are the risks if it doesn't go through? Well, I think it's quite significant. Uh, AI in particular is becoming uh, kind of a dangerous technology out there. The G7 even acknowledged that last week when they uh, uh, you know, had some reports saying that it perhaps threatened human human existence. And I think that might be a little hyperbolic, but the fact is that it's a rapidly developing technology that in the hands of a potential adversary uh, could be pretty catastrophic. So I think I think it is important for, uh, for the U.S. and other Western nations to take some measures to try and uh, try and curtail uh, Chinese advancement in this. Uh, it could be argued that uh, Chinese technology is, depending on how you measure it, already more advanced than, than American. Their biggest problem is manufacturing. They don't have the capability to be able to manufacture the components and some of the higher end uh, parts that they need. And as AI develops, so does the demand for the technologies that fuel it. And right. already there is a shortage of advanced chips. Could this present a national security risk considering, for example, China's ambitions and its rapid military expansion? Well, it could, you know, for the, for the U.S. and the West in general, it's kind of a double-edged sword, right? I mean, we, <clears throat> we want to curtail uh, China's advancements in this uh, industry. On the other hand, uh, we also want the need the microchips to be able to, you know, continue on our own, our own technology and develop our own technology. So, and a lot of that may come from, may have to come from China. So, and it gets more complicated when you consider how intertwined the global economy and global supply chains are. Uh, so I think, Part of the solution, of course, this is, well, one would be to make all of our own. We're not really good at that. That's the whole idea of uh, comparative uh, advantage. Uh, the Taiwanese are very good at doing this. Uh, I would argue that this is a perfect opportunity to explore and expand uh, formal trade with Taiwan and some of our other partners uh, in, the, in the democratic world that can supply these technologies without having to you know, help subsidize uh, China's industry. 
And I just want to look at drones now. Artificial intelligence technology is increasingly found in, in drones. And Congressman Frank Lucas warned last week that China has cornered that market. He said one single company with extensive ties to the Chinese Communist Party and the People's Liberation Army produces 80% of the drones used recreationally in the U.S. and that 90% of our local and regional public safety agencies use drones made in China. What's your reaction to that? Well, I mean, the same thing, you know, it's, we, we have a demand for this technology and the technology and the components are coming from a potential adversary. I mean, that's creating a pretty significant national security risk for, you know, for us as a nation and honestly for the West as, you know, kind of civilizationally. Uh, and again, I think it's, it's imperative that, you know, we can't just curtail uh, Im imports from China because we need the technology. We need to find ways to source that technology from other places. Again, I go back to, to Taiwan and, you know, the need to, you know, establish some bilateral trade relationships there uh, or potentially, you know, bring some of the, uh, uh, some technology back, back to our shores. But it's and a very what do you, issue though. Right. And what is in the way of these moves, do you think? Is there anything in the way? Uh, as, as in obstacles to it, you mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, obviously, the there's the the simple fact that so much of it is coming from China right now that we're we're dependent. We've made ourselves dependent on you know some of these supply global supply chains. Uh, I think the biggest uh, challenge is probably simply politically. It's it's the political will to be able to take a you know an honest, real world adult view of. Uh, the world situation, uh, take an honest assessment of the threats that China poses to us and to our allies and uh, to world order, and then you know make some uh, make some moves to, uh, to to try and counter that. And having a coherent foreign policy that's linked in with your economic policy uh, is is critical in that. That's something we've been short on for several years. Certainly requires more uh, dedicated attention for sure. Thank you so much, Kelly Sloan, Senior Fellow in Energy and Environment at the Centennial Institute. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Now to the UK. Britain's defense intelligence chief recently warned that Russia will remain the main threat to the UK until the end of the decade, but said China would pose the greatest challenge from 2030. Here's NTD's Jane Worrell with more. The chief of defence intelligence recently said that Britain's security priority should be Russia. That's until 2030, when the priority and focus should be China. Adrian Bird said China will compete more directly with the UK in areas like semiconductors and rare earth elements. And its army, intelligence and scientific capabilities pose an increasing threat. In 2015, former British Prime Minister David Cameron heralded a golden era between the UK and the Chinese regime. An era that current Prime Minister Rishi Sunak said is over. I spoke with the director of a charity that's producing a library of resources on the UK's relationship with China. He says things have changed since Cameron. What we saw in the period roughly 2014 to maybe 2017, 2018, uh, which was a sort of, uh, some would say, unthinking embrace of partnerships, uh, collaboration and so on with the CCP under Xi Jinping, uh, I think that's over. I think now um, we have learned enough uh, to exercise a little more caution. He says although that era is over, the UK hasn't learnt all its lessons yet. We're still uh, not plugged in enough to what's happening uh, in China under the CCP, under Xi Jinping. 
Um, and I think we still lack that ability to, you know, do useful things like predict what might change, you know, predict what might happen with regard to Taiwan, so on and so forth. Well, Adrian Bird said just as the UK's closest allies have taken steps to counter Russia's destabilizing influence in Europe and support Ukraine, the UK must be alive to the challenges being presented by China. Jane Worrell, NTD News, London. Coming up in sports news, four Connecticut female athletes have challenged the state's transgender policy, but a recent reversal has given them their day in court. And today is National Donut Day, but we won't sugarcoat this upcoming story. One family-owned shop shares what makes them one of the best-selling donut shops in the nation. Stay tuned for more after the break. Welcome back. Fairness in women's sports has become a divisive subject and major legal battle with Title IX at the heart of it. NTD's Dave Martin has more on a case out of Connecticut. Next week, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals will hear a lawsuit brought by four ex-high school female athletes from Connecticut who are suing the Connecticut Interscholastic Athletic Conference, or CAAC, over its policy that allows biological males who identify as females to compete in girls' sports. The case dates back to 2017 when the state allowed a pair of transgender athletes into women's track and field. The result was domination. Combined, the duo broke 17 track meet records and claimed 15 state titles, all in the girls' category. One of my clients, Chelsea Mitchell, four times was the fastest female athlete in a state championship race, and four times she lost to a male athlete and walked away without the gold medal, without the title, without the public recognition, without the banner in the gym. Christiana Kiefer, senior counsel for Alliance Defending Freedom, is one of the lead attorneys for the four girls. She says CIAC's transgender policy, which lets school districts determine which gender they compete in based on their gender identity, violates Title IX, which is a federal law designed to stop sex discrimination against women while ensuring equal educational opportunities. But it's come to be synonymous with equal opportunity in sports. And it's really the reason that we have separate men's and women's sports teams in the United States, in the United States and have done so for the last 50 years. But allowing males to compete in the female category violates those basic principles of fairness and even simple biology, because it's clear that males have inherent physical advantages over females that make it unfair to force girls to compete against men. The lawsuit was originally dismissed in 2021. An appeal, though, was heard last December by the Second Circuit Court, which originally upheld the dismissal, but now is being re-argued next week. Meanwhile, the ACLU of Connecticut has joined the CIAC in defending their policy. After their victory in December, ACLU attorney Joshua Block said in a statement, quote, This critical victory strikes at the heart of political attacks against transgender youth while helping ensure every young person has the right to play. Kiefer, though, says that right to play isn't being taken away by this lawsuit. There's a place for everyone in sports. 
the question is, where is it most fair for those individuals to compete? And the real reason that we have women's sports as a separate category is not to celebrate anyone's girlhood or to foster anything of that nature. It's really to ensure that girls have an opportunity to compete fairly in sports, to showcase their talents, to be on the podium, to earn college scholarship opportunities. That's why women's sports exists as a separate category and we don't lump everyone in together. The case, now three years old, will be reheard on June 6. This is Dave Martin for NTD News. Not all things should be sugar coated, but when it comes to donuts, it's acceptable. For National Donut Day today, NTD's David Lamb asks locals why they flock to grab desserts at one Silicon Valley shop. Today is National Donut Day, and we decided to check out a local shop that's been family-owned since 1959. This morning, the line was out the door, but Donut Fret, we have a sweet story behind that. It's a particularly busy morning for Stan's Donut Shop and owners Julie Clark and Kathy. I like a more dense donut, so I like the buttermilk and the old-fashioned, and specifically the chocolate old-fashioned, and those are two of our best sellers. But the most popular is the glazed. That's what most people like. So what are your favorite donuts? The sprinkle and the glaze. The glaze. They got the best glaze in the world. The glaze with the chocolate. A glazed old-fashioned, and sometimes a twister as well, depending on if I really want to blow my diet. Donut holes? or the glazed hot fresh donuts. Stan's Donuts was started by World War II veteran Stanford Whitmayer in the 50s. Nine of his children all helped out at the shop. Now two are carrying the legacy on, keeping its classic style. And based on 2023 data from Yelp, this donut shop is among the top 10 best in the nation. We don't really go from the basics. We're very classic with our donuts, nothing fancy or crazy. But our buttermilk donut, which is one of the most popular, it changes flavor daily. They sell out every day. As if frozen in time, the place brings back memories for many, including 64-year-old Kelly Grimes, who first went when she was about four. My dad used to take me and we'd sit at the counter and I'd have a donut and milk and he'd have a donut and coffee. And I come back periodically, but today I had to be here because it's National Donut Day. For those that want their donut extra fresh. All right, we're going to try their famous glazed donut. Can dine in right at the counter. All right, so first reaction, it's warm and it just melts right in the mouth. Our father and our brothers um, just always paid attention to quality. You can't cut on quality. You have to do the process. You have to do everything you're supposed to, use the best ingredients. Then just turns out well. <laughs> in Santa Clara, California, David Lamb, NTD News. And finally, in Paris, a museum is presenting an exhibition on Asian medicine. It features a variety of art objects that reveal ancient methods of healing not only the body, but also the soul. NTD's France correspondent David Vives has that story. It took three years for curator Aurélie Samuel to gather these artifacts in the Guimet Museum in Paris. More than 300 masterpieces, some of them very rare, are on public display taking visitors beyond the boundaries of time and space to discover the ancient methods of Asian medicine. 
a topic that often shows an understanding that's different from modern methods and invites introspection as it gives us a second look at the connection between humanity and nature and even reaches beyond our world. This is the cosmic man, a representation of the macrocosm and microcosm. It's a kind of condensation of the universe. We also found a universe in every part of the body of what we call the Purusha, the cosmic man. Not only in the Buddhist tradition, but also in ancient China, it was thought that the human body contains multiple worlds, environments and divinities, all of which find balance with each other, as is shown in this old Taoist painting. So it's quite interesting to think that the body has to blend into nature, but is itself a nature that has to be taken care of. It is said that the Yellow Emperor founded Chinese civilization and also created Chinese medicine in a treatise he wrote. This treatise is important because it essentially contains all the rules of Chinese medicine, the entire codification, and in particular, the idea of the meridians. There are 12 meridians in the human body, each of which corresponds to an organ. It's a network that we don't know how to reconcile with the classical framework of Western medicine. Some Asian cultures support the idea that the true origin of disease is spiritual. According to the exhibition, there is a close connection between spiritual beings and medicine. The earliest medical text shows that the Chinese believed that disease came from bad deeds committed by one's ancestors. And some of the healing techniques used a thousand years ago still find their place in medicine today. There's the treatise of Sun Simiao, who was a rather famous physician of the 11th century. And this treatise is actually still in use today. That is to say, most of the medicines that were used back then are used the same way today. Samuel says healing the body couldn't be achieved without the soul. And if your astrological sign is the rat, tiger or dragon, the treatment will be different. Each person, in fact, has a specific physical constitution that's also guided by the stars. This determines the type of treatment to be given, as well as the way in which one should behave towards oneself, the way in which one should pray, the way in which one should consider one's own body and the soul attached to one's body, in order to achieve healing. The exhibition will be open until September 18th. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. And if you have any news tips or feedback for our show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox. Good night.